Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? Boy, it's a wonderful thing to hear that noise when you say turn in your Bibles to hear pages going music to my ears. Somebody once said if everyone decided to read their Bibles at the same time, we'd have the biggest dust storm in history. I hope that's not true. This is true, however. There was a guy who compiled a list of Bible stories as retold by students around the country. He wrote an article for National Review. And now these are little quips of the Bible, all put into one paragraph, all retold by students about what they thought the Bible said. It goes like this. In the first book of the Bible, which is Guinness's, God got tired of creating the world, so he took the Sabbath off. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. Samson slayed the Philistines with the axe of the apostles. (laughs) Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. (laughs) The fifth commandment is to humor thy father and thy mother. That's one that a lot of kids keep. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery That's another one a lot of people keep. (laughs) Moses died before they ever reached the land of Canada. (laughs) Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. (laughs) Samson, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. (laughs) Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraption. The people who followed the Lord were called the Twelve Decibels, and the Epistles were the wives of the Apostles. (laughs) Finally, a Christian should have only one wife. This is called monotony. (laughs) Acts chapter 2 is the first church. The church is born. It becomes our model, our template, our stencil for what a church community ought to be like, for what individuals within that community ought to be like. And last week we began in really verse 40 and then 41 and 42, and we saw that the first three ingredients of the church were a bold proclamation that Peter and John and Stephen and all of the scattered Christians and later on Paul, all of them were committed to evangelism, a bold proclamation. Then we noticed that there was a glad reception, that the people who listened to the messages that were spoken by these were attentive to what was being spoken. They were an anointed audience. And then third, we saw that there was a steadfast devotion As we saw in verse 42, and we look back at it today, 
They continued steadfastly. Now, what we're going to do this morning and the next few weeks is find out what they were continuing steadfastly in. What were the four priorities of the early church? What activities marked them and bound them together? And so what I'd like you to do is begin with me in verse 41 again, and we'll go all the way down to verse 47 for the sake of the paragraph context, and then we'll zero in on verse 42. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized that day. About 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, I promised you last week that we would take verse 42 and look at it in layers. And today's the first layer of that. Really, it's the second installment in um, looking at Acts chapter 2. But we want to look at each of those four priorities one week at a time. And here's the first. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's all we're going to look at today. So let's begin then with uh, a definition. The definition of it. Doctrine. What does it mean? If you were to uh, go through a Bible concordance or if you had a fancy computer program, you discover that the word doctrine appears 37 times in the New Testament. So if, if anything appears that often, don't you think it's fairly important? Doctrine is 37 times. Didache is the Greek word. Didaskalia is another form of the same. And this is all it means. Teaching or instruction. They devoted themselves continually to the apostles' instruction, the apostles' teaching, doctrine. I've got to tell you, if there was ever a word I felt sorry for, it is the word doctrine. I say I feel sorry for it because I think it's sort of gotten a bad rap, a negative rap. Oh, no, we're going to talk doctrine. And I sort of heard this. Over the years, even in subtle conversations and things like, well, we're not really into doctrine here. Doctrine isn't all that important. Uh, all we do is love each other and accept each other, and we put doctrine aside. You hear how ludicrous that sounds? We don't care about teaching here. We don't care about instruction. We don't care about truth. All we want to do is love each other. We put truth and teaching and instruction aside. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. I love gadgets. There's only one catch. I hate manuals that come with the gadgets. I, I never read them, honestly. Because the manual's like way much bigger. It's like the manual's this thick and the gadget's this small. I'm not going to read that thing. No, I'm going to figure it out on my own. I'm going to turn it on. I got this thing licked. I'll figure it out. And if it breaks... I'll call somebody who knows how to work it. But here's how it works. When I can't find anybody and the gadget breaks, my last resort is what? Get the manual. 
And that's my fear, that a lot of Christians live their lives doing it by the seat of the pants, and then when it all breaks down, they want to find out what the manual of life says about how to live. And so it's neglected. It's not placed in the same priority dynamic that it was in the early church. And that's my concern. My concern is that there are a great number of even Christian people who are concerned about how they feel rather than what is the truth, what we know. James Montgomery Boyce is in heaven now, but he wrote something I want to read to you. He said, he was a pastor back in Philadelphia, We do not have a strong church today, nor do we have many strong Christians. We can trace the cause to an acute lack of sound spiritual knowledge. Ask the average Christian to talk about God, and after getting past the expected answers, you'll find that his God is a little God of vacillating sentiments. You probably remember, you'll be able to finish the statement that the prophet Hosea said about the conditions in his day. He was a prophet of God, and in looking over the spiritual landscape of his nation, he said, my people perish for lack of what? Knowledge. They are dying everywhere because of lack of knowledge. When it comes to Bible truth, ignorance is not bliss. In fact, it's devastating. I had a friend who pastored a church for a long time, and he used to be a Bible teacher, and then he just sort of thought, you know, I don't want to just do this all my life. I want to have a little fun. So he decided to push the Bible aside from the services and did just about everything else. And when it all came crashing down, he made an interesting confession to me. He said, Skip, I have to confess. My church, and I'm responsible, is biblically illiterate. Biblically illiterate. Well... I think about Jesus' own day and the religious crowds in his time and how that on four separate occasions, as if asking incredulously, Jesus said to the leaders, Have you not read? He's talking to spiritual teachers, leaders of the Jewish nation, and basically said, Don't you guys read your Bibles? Don't you know the doctrines? And then on two occasions, when Paul wrote his letters to his audiences, the churches in the New Testament, on two occasions he said specifically, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning. And what's interesting to me is the two things that he says that about are spiritual gifts and the second coming of Christ. And I say it's interesting because the two areas that Christians I find are the most ignorant on is spiritual gifts and the second coming of Christ. But he specifically said, I don't want you to be ignorant. You need knowledge in these areas. Paul was a pastor par excellence, and he trained young pastors like Timothy and Titus. And he'd send them into churches like um, Ephesus. That's where he sent Timothy and Colossae. He dispatched these young pastors, and he told them to keep the Word of God as a priority in their ministry. Uh, Back in 1636 in our country, just 16 years after the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, the very first school was opened up. And uh, the first school in America was named after a preacher. Did you know that? The preacher's name was 
John Harvard. Ring a bell? Became Harvard University. Now, I've got to tell you, Harvard University today does not resemble at all in its mission statement what it was originally intended. It was originally intended to train up clergymen. And they wanted to make sure the gospel and the word of God was so preeminent. And here's why. Because we are dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. This is the way I figure the job of a pastor is to be. I sort of look at it like like a mom in a kitchen. I remember my mom used to say sometimes, I slave over a hot stove all day long for you kids. You remember hearing your mom say stuff like that? My mom did. We had four boys, though, in my family, and uh, we gave her grief. But I look at the job of a pastor as sort of, I go into the spiritual kitchen and slave over the hot stove during the week to make sure that when we get together, there's a solid meal. See, I kind of ask myself, why? Why would people get up on Sunday morning and put their clothes on and all gather together? What for? i got to make sure that there's something to eat. Something is on the table. That's why we plow deeply through the Scripture and give you context and history and background and word usage, etc., to plow deeply to lay that foundation. Now I want to ask you a question. How do you fare in conversations when the Bible comes up and people in the crowd or in your little group or at the desk at the office say things like, well, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. Or what does the Bible mean when it says this or that? Or when the cultist knocks at your door and says, Hi, I'm one of Jehovah's Christian witnesses. Jesus is not God. Where do you get that idea? Or the uh, bicycling Mormon missionary with his suit and tie uh, pedals up to your door and he's standing there and he has elder badge on even though he's 13 years old. He's elder so-and-so and he's going to tell you about his religion. How, how do you fare giving Bible answers to people with questions? Well, doctrine, that's the definition of it. It simply means instruction or teaching, and it means sound, healthy instruction. That's the idea of it. So here's the early church. They got together. They heard the gospel. They formed an alliance that was based around the doctrine, the teaching, the instruction that was sound and healthy. But now I want you to look back at verse 42, and you perhaps already know this, but look at the designation of it. The designation of it is this. It is the apostles' doctrine. Not just any old doctrine, any old teaching, nice thoughts, sermonettes, but the apostles' doctrine. You say, well, what does that mean? Does that differ from any other form of doctrine? Let me describe it to you in terms of context. It was the day of Pentecost. That's what we're dealing with. It was one of those three annual feasts that the Jews had to attend if they lived anywhere in the the environs of Judah. They had to make a pilgrimage all the way to the temple and worship. And it was something that people did in caravans. They made a pilgrimage. And so they would worship at tabernacles. They would worship at the Feast of Passover. And then if they wanted to, if they traveled from a far distance, like from other parts of the world, some of them, they would stay an extra 50 days in town till the Feast of Pentecost rolled around. And it was this day, the Feast of Pentecost, when people were in the temple, they were Jewish worshipers, that Peter preached the gospel to them, And 3,000 of them got saved. Okay, now picture your little church of 120 members. That's how big it was at first. 120 people in an upper room. 
suddenly gets 25 times larger in one fell swoop. What do you do with them? You train them. Okay, there's 12 apostles, right? One was dead. They replaced him. So there's 12 apostles. There's 120 people in a room. There's 3,000 new saved. There's people getting saved every day on top of that. That would mean that every of the, one of the apostles could have an assembly of about 300 people. But we got to break it up. We got to give them something to latch on to. The crowd, the group that got saved, 3,000 of them had a spiritual background. They were Jewish. They were conversant in the Old Testament Scriptures. That was their Bible. And that's why several times in Acts chapter 2, Peter reaches back into the Old Testament, quoting Joel, quoting Psalm 16, to show that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah in His death, burial, and resurrection. All of it was predicted. But he uses the Old Testament to show the fulfillment of their modern day. And that's what the Apostles' Doctrine is. The Apostles' Doctrine is simply... The apostles giving the explanation of how the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in the Messiah, in his death, burial, and resurrection. It was enough to get him saved, and now they want to continue in the apostles' doctrine. And and sort of like a lawyer laying down a case, uh, Peter unravels the Old Testament and shows the synthesis of it, the explanation of how it all fits together. So it goes back to Moses and David and and uh, different ones of the prophets, and shows how all of it comes together in Jesus Christ. And they respond. That's the Apostles' Doctrine. Now I want to read uh, something to you that was a poll uh, that was done not too long ago. The poll said, only 25% of born-again Christians read the Bible every day. Now there's a lot of people who say, I'm a born-again Christian. Only 25% read the Bible every day. 57% don't read it other than at church. So it is sort of like the opening statement. Open it up, brush the dust off of, make it look like it's okay, take it to church. 57%. 32% say it's just too difficult to understand. And that's the modern church as opposed to the ancient church. They devoted themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine. We're reading Jeremiah on Wednesday nights. By the way, I would encourage you to come to that. But one of the things Jeremiah said that strikes me is concerning the scriptures. He said to the Lord, your words were found and I did eat them. And they were to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. So they devoted themselves to the not just doctrine, but to the apostles' doctrine. And that's, that's very important. It's important because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, well, our church reads the Bible, and there is a difference between just teaching and the apostles' doctrine. A lot of people start with the Bible. A lot of preachers, by the way, begin all of their sermons with the text. And here's their method. Begin with the text, depart from the text, And never return to the text. And so we'll mention a few little bits and pieces of the Bible. And it ends up to be, rather than an expositional teaching of the Apostles' Doctrine, it ends up to be a sermonette. i got to tell you, frankly, a lot of people would love sermonettes. Not here. I find a great hunger for the Word of God. But I've been around a lot of churches and find that lots of people would rather have sermonettes rather than sermons. 
By the way, you know what a sermonette is. A sermonette is for Christianettes. (laughs) Sermons are for God's people. They love the Word. One of my favorite texts is where, and I won't have you turn to it, but just remember it. You may want to write it down if you're not familiar with it and go look at it sometime. Luke chapter 24. It's uh, after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, though these two disciples featured in in, uh, Luke 24 didn't know Jesus had risen from the dead. They are so sad. And I'm going to paraphrase a bit. They're walking down the road. They're very bummed out. Their heads are down. They're shuffling their feet. And they're talking to one another. And Jesus comes walking up incognito. They don't know it's him. And he likes that. And so he starts asking them questions like, What are you guys so bummed out about? And they turn to Jesus Christ. And they said to him, not knowing it was him, What? Are you a stranger around here? Don't you know the things that have happened lately? And then, classic, Jesus says, what things? Now, these were all the things they had everything to do with him, but he plays like, what things? He wants to hear it from them. And so they told him, oh, this Jesus of Nazareth character, we hoped in him, and we thought he was going to be the Messiah, but he's dead, and he hadn't risen from the dead. And then the Bible says, Jesus looked at them and said, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? And get this. It says, beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them all of the things in the scriptures concerning himself. Man, if there was ever a Bible study I wish would have been recorded That's the one. Even a tape or a CD, if that could have been left, I would just love to have heard that message. Why? Because Jesus reaches back through the Old Testament and shows how all of those predictions in the Psalms, in the law, in the prophets, were referencing himself. Well, the story goes on in the same chapter where... Jesus acted like he had to go, but they constrained him and they begged that he would have a meal with them. And in the meal, he broke bread and he said, peace be to you. And then he vanished out of their sight. And when Jesus vanished, one turned toward his friend and he said this, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way and as he opened up the scriptures to us? I love that spiritual heartburn. Didn't our heart burn within us? Now, they're not talking about esophageal reflux. They're talking about a spiritual sensation. Their hearts burned. What was the burning of the heart from? What did they say? Didn't our hearts burn as we sang? Didn't our hearts burn as we hugged each other? Didn't our hearts burn as we talked to Him? None of those things, though all those things are important. What caused that spiritual sensation is, didn't our hearts burn as he talked to us? We weren't saying anything. He said something to us, and he opened up the scriptures to us. You know what that sensation comes from, folks, friends? It comes from a new understanding of familiar things. Listen, a new understanding of familiar things. When Jesus spoke to them the word of God, was it new? No, it wasn't new at all. He began in Moses and all the prophets and expounded. It's, they grew up on the scriptures. They were Jews. They heard it all their lives. 
It wasn't anything new they heard, but it was a new application of the old revelation. And here's my point. A lot of Christians are saying things like, I need a new experience. I need new revelation. No, you don't. You need a fresh new application of the old stuff. That's all. And when that old stuff is unlocked in your heart, in your mind, and you understand and you see Christ in it, it'll set your heart on fire. And you'll be able to say, my heart burned. He talked to me in his word, in the doctrine, in the apostles' doctrine, as he opened up the word to us. Now, finally, I want to close with the third point to make, and that is their devotion to it, their devotion to it. What I want you to notice, though it's obvious, but I think it's very crucial, very vital, is that the apostles' doctrine is first on their list, not second, not third, not fourth. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's number one. That's the order of it. That was their priority list. It didn't say, uh, and they continued steadfastly in singing and praying, or they continued steadfastly in loving each other. Love isn't first on the list. Singing isn't first on the list. Doing missions isn't first on the list. Though all of those things are vital for any church. There's a reason the apostles' doctrine is first on the list, and here it is. Unless you know the apostles' doctrine, you won't know how to love, do missions, have fellowship, or do anything in the Christian community the right way. You'll either overemphasize or underemphasize something. It is the Word of God. It is the Apostles' Doctrine. It is putting all of the Scriptures together and getting God's mind through the Word that tells us how to do all of those functions and brings harmony and balance to our lives. And by the way, one of the reasons I am committed to going from one part of the book, the beginning all the way through the book to the end of the book, and then taking another book and going from Genesis to Exodus all the way to Revelation. Here's why. When you go through the Bible, you will discover every single issue that is important to God, and you'll get it in its context, and you'll get it with the emphasis that God gives it. That's beautiful. So somebody might say, you ought to talk more about the family. My answer, I will, once we get to it in the Bible. It's there. It's in the Bible. It might not be mentioned on every page, but it's there. Oh, when are you going to speak more about uh, finances? We'll get to it. The Bible has a lot to say about finances. But the point is, you will get the emphasis that God gives it. It's funny. In all the years I've done preaching and teaching, nobody said, when are you going to speak more on tithing? (laughs) Though it's there. It's all over the place. But you'll get it in its context. I know some preachers that think tithing's on every page of the Bible. Now, I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to try to bring this to a a, a close, a worthy close. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul trained pastors, and he left Timothy at Ephesus to raise up that church. 1 Timothy is all about church order, bishops, elders, deacons. It's about women in the church, men in the church. It's about what they ought to do as they gather together. And there's a lot about doctrine in 1 Timothy. In fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul says, Until I come and join you, Timothy, give attention to reading and exhortation and doctrine. 
Now I've had you turn to 2 Timothy and look at chapter 4 with me because Paul is giving to Peter. And by the way, this is Paul's last letter before he dies. And so he gives this young preacher what is to be the priority in his ministry. And he tells us why. And I think it will be very revealing. Chapter 4, 2 Timothy, verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and what does it say? It says teaching. It's the word didache or didaskalia. It is the word that is doctrine. With all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come, here's the reason. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears from the truth and be turned to fables. That to me is remarkable. He says, a time is coming when even the church, even those who profess to be Christians, won't endure sound doctrine. They'll just want to hear what they want to hear, and they'll find anybody to give what they want to hear to them. You say, come on. Is that possible? Folks, it happens all the time. McCall's Magazine did a little survey of 3,000 Protestant ministers. You want to hear the results? 3,000 Protestant ministers. Here's the results. Quote, a considerable number of them reject altogether the idea of a personal God. God, they said, was the ground of all being, the force of life, the principle of love. 56%, these are pastors, preachers, 56% reject the virgin birth. 71% reject the idea of life after death. 54% reject bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And 98% reject that there would be any personal return of Jesus Christ to the earth. I would say to them, what are you doing in the ministry? Why would you be behind a pulpit? What do you believe in? What do you do? They will not endure sound doctrine. So, Timothy, that's your priority. Preach the word. Not your opinions. Not just feel-good sermonettes. Preach the word. With all long-suffering and doctrine. It's sad but true. You could go into some church settings and you could trim down the sermon really short, give it 15 minutes, and bump up the music and the drama and nobody would... In fact, they'd applaud you. But if you dare do expository messages and lengthen the sermon and take out some of that stuff, it will not be tolerated. They will not endure sound doctrine. A few years ago when my son Nathan was growing up uh, at the table that night, my wife prepared a beautiful meal. But there was asparagus on the table. (laughs) Now you know how a little boy feels about things like asparagus. It's like Brussels sprouts broccoli and he had to eat it now I wanted to say honey just let him have whatever he wants he's a boy no I didn't say that it would not be good in a marriage (laughs) but here was the deal at the end of the table was um, muffins with jam I recall his eye was on the muffins not on the asparagus but the deal is you want the muffins you eat the asparagus There's a lot of Christians who will not endure sound asparagus. 
They want the jam and they want the, the buttered up cakes and, and not the vegetables. And it will be the ruin of them if the preacher, if the pastor does not help them endure sound doctrine and get an appetite for it. I would consider it a wasted day if I were not enriched in some way by the Word of God, by something that God spoke from His Word. But i got to tell you something. This love and continuing in the Apostles' doctrine, folks, it's not automatic. It has to be cultivated. It is not part of our human nature. Our human nature is, are we done yet? Is the sermon over yet? I've got lunch to go to. There's important things. Are you, you, you through it? So it has to be cultivated. And I want to give you some ideas of how to cultivate a love and a devotion to the Scripture. Number one, carry a Bible. Well, I have a Bible. Carry it. What do you mean carry? Like everywhere all the time? No, not necessarily all the time. But, you know, I have a Bible in my car. I have one in my motorcycle saddlebag. I have one in a golf bag, even though I rarely play golf. I want to make sure at least I'll do something out there that I know how to do when I'm on the golf course. (laughs) That's how bad it is. I have a friend who has the Bible on his little phone. It's a PDA, and he's got a Bible on it. I go, what do you do with that thing? He goes, listen, there's a lot of times when you're in gridlock or you're in a doctor's office, and you've got the Word. So carry a Bible. Number two, bring your Bibles to church. In fact, I think we're going to start saying, how many brought your Bibles? Hold it up every week, just to have everybody shamed, if we need to, into bringing their Bibles. (laughs) And here's why. There's something about reading along in the Bible and finding out where it is that you read that. So at a time of need, you'll be able to find it. Bring your Bible to church. Number three, you may want to go further, as some do, and bring a notebook and actually take notes, write down main points, cross-references to go back and see how the Lord would apply it to your life. Number four, meditate on the Word of God. Meditate. Now, forget everything the world has told you about meditation, transcendental or otherwise. Meditation simply means to focus all of your attention, all of your thoughts on one subject for a period of time. Meditate when you read the Bible. It's hard to do, isn't it? We live in a very distracted society. It's hard. We're barraged by stuff all the time. To sit and think about one thing over a period of time is hard but enriching. You know, I've been to India several times, and and I watched these nincompoops out there meditating in a trance for hours with stuff stuck through their bodies in the midst of a city of thousands and millions of people. And I think, here they are meditating on that stuff, and Christians can't meditate on the Word of God, the eternal truth from heaven. Meditate on it. Number five, tell somebody what you learned. Tell somebody, if you learn something in your quiet time or in a message or in a radio program or from a book, call a friend and tell them. Because that will whet your appetite for the next step, which is becoming a teacher of it. If you want to learn something, teach it. That's why I love to teach the Bible. I learn so much. Number six, memorize the Bible. I don't mean all of it. Though I know some people who are making that their aim. They've already memorized several books of it, but learn to memorize Scripture. As David said, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Commit it to memory. 
Because in a time of crisis, when somebody bumps into you, that's what's going to spill out, what you've brought in. I'll add one more thing to that, number seven, just to make it more biblical, I suppose. The seventh thing to do, come to Wednesday night Bible study. Do not confine your Bible study to just a Sunday morning experience. Come and plow through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through the Bible. Oh, but I'm so busy. Change your schedule. What do you mean? Change your schedule. Make it a priority to study the Word of God. If you've ever been in love, um, you remember those love letters? Do you ever write those? Do you ever receive them? Uh, we have somewhere the love letters that we wrote to each other, my wife and myself, when we were dating. And I remember going to the mailbox and seeing a letter from Lenya. I got to tell you, I treated that letter differently than any other thing in my mailbox. I did not say, oh, another one from her. Like a bill or something. I said, all right. I opened it up and I hung on every word. Some of you recognize the name Mortimer J. Adler. He's the editor-in-chief of Encyclopedia Britannica. He wrote some great books. Uh, He did a little quip in the New York Times called How to Read a Love Letter. And it's a picture of an adolescent receiving a love letter, pouring over the words. This is what it says. This young man just received his first love letter. He may have read it already three or four times, but he's just beginning. To read it as accurately as he would like would require several dictionaries and a good deal of close work with a few experts in etymology and philology. However, he'll do all right with them. He will ponder over the exact shade of the meaning of every word, every comma, and he has headed his letter, or she has headed the letter, Dear John. What, he asks himself, is the significance of those words? Did she refrain from saying, Dearest, his name was John. It wasn't a Dear John letter, if you were thinking. (laughs) Did she refrain from saying, Dearest, because she was bashful? Would my dear have sounded too formal? Jeepers, maybe she would have said, Dear so-and-so to anybody. A worried frown appears on his face. But it disappears as soon as he really gets to think about it. He thinks about the first sentence. She certainly wouldn't have said that to just anybody. And so he works his way through the letter, one moment perched blissfully on a cloud, the next moment huddled miserably behind an eight ball. It has started a hundred questions in his mind. He could now quote it by heart. In fact, he will to himself for weeks to come. He talks about how to read a love letter. And at the end of that little thing in the New York Times, Mortimer J. Adler wrote this. If people read books with anything like the same consideration of that letter, we would be a race of literary giants. I think you know my point. If we would read this book like that boy read that love letter, we would be a race of spiritual giants. This is a love letter. God has something to say to me, not like, oh, yeah, another Bible study. If that is your attitude, then it's time to examine your attitude before God and ask the first question, am I saved? Am I saved? Do I love this God who poured out his love and life for me? And then if I get past that first question, yeah, I am saved. I've committed my life to Christ. I trust in him with my whore. I'm following him. Then maybe it's just a matter of I need to return to my first love. 
And look at this as God wants to say something to me. Therefore, it's going to be on the top of my priority list. I will devote myself continually to the apostles' doctrine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads and we say those words, my mind races back in history to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the tribes of Israel, realizing that I'm addressing the same God that they trusted in and addressed and heard from. And now here, 2,000 years after the birth and death and resurrection of your Messiah, your son, we're able to talk to the same God and have a relationship with him because of what Jesus did for us. And because you do love us and because your plan is so incredible for us. To read this book with any less consideration than a young boy getting a letter from a young girl wouldn't be right. And so we echo the words of David who said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. I am wiser than my instructors. I've hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word and testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. Lord, in this moment of prayer, we make that commitment that those 3,000 fresh babes in Christ made 2,000 years ago to remain steadfast in our commitment of the Apostles' Doctrine. May we love it. May we love it and never get enough of it because we love it so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.